Hello and welcome to the All 80s Movies Podcast, the podcast where we talk about the blockbusters, the flops, and everything in between from one of the freshest decades for movies, the 1980s. I'm your host, Bill Banton. Along with me on this journey back to the 80s is my co-host, Jason Masick. Hello, Jason. Bill, you're impressed with me. No. Yes, you are. Hey, Bill, how are you doing, buddy? (laughs) Good, man. How are you? I am well. Very well. Thanks for asking. Good. All right. um, So let's get in today's movie. It is the 1987 thriller No Way Out starring Kevin Costner, Gene Hackman, Sean Young, and Will Patton. Directed by Roger Donaldson. This movie is rated R with a running time of one hour and 54 minutes. So what is this movie about? What's on the box? If you grew up in the 1980s and went to your local video store to rent this movie, this would be the description you would find on the back of the VHS box. What's on the box? Take it away, Jason. Kevin Costner stars as Lieutenant Commander Tom Farrell in this riveting box office smash about a perplexing web of romantic intrigue and political corruption. Farrell has been assigned as the CIA liaison for the Secretary of Defense, David Bryce, played by Gene Hackman. At a diplomatic bash, the lieutenant is enticed by a sensual and charming cosmopolitan, Susan Atwell, played by Sean Young. A night of fervent passion blossoms into an enduring romance, but when Farrell finds out that Susan is also his boss's mistress, it's the start of deadly trouble. Farrell's assigned to investigate a murder, the mysterious death of Susan Atwell. He is shattered by the loss of his love and the savvy and savvy that the rumors of a Soviet agent spied in the shadows at Susan's house are a cover up for the real murderer. Because of his connection to the victim, however, all evidence points to Farrell himself. Devious plot twists, harrowing chases and narrow escapes ensue as Lieutenant Farrell finds there may be no way out. So that was what's on the box. All right, Jason, before we get into this podcast, I think we should warn our audience, um, there is going to be some major spoilers. Absolutely. So I hate to actually say this, but if you have not seen this movie and don't want to know what these spoilers are, stop it right now, watch the film, and then come back and check out the rest of this podcast later. We will try to hold these spoilers to the end as much as possible, but I cannot guarantee it. So no guarantees but not that i would want you to stop listening to our podcast but yeah if you don't want to know the ending or get anything revealed you have been warned all right so let's uh move on to our earliest memories of no way out jason why don't you start us off absolutely bill bant i love this movie it is one of my favorite costner films I ended up seeing this film much later after its release. This is a 1987 film, and I did not see it in the theater. I am assuming I caught on to it in the mid-90s, either amidst my uh, college career or just post-college around that time, which, funny enough, is when I was also introduced to Field of Dreams for the first time. Our mutual friend Marwan had me sit down and watch that film, which I am always grateful for or eternally grateful to Marwan for making me watch that movie. I didn't catch on to this much till much later and I'll get into the reasons why I probably didn't. Having said that, my earliest memory, I mean, gosh, because I go straight to the cast first and Will Patton, he's the man, you know, there's obviously Kevin Costner. There's obviously Gene Hackman. You have Sean Young in this film. 
uh, some other wonderful character actors in this film. But I go straight to Will Patton and he has such a, this quiet intensity about him and he can explode at any moment and he does explode at any moment. So whenever I think of this film and my, one of my earliest memories instantly is David, Mm -hmm. because that's towards the end of the film. And that's a scene we will inevitably be discussing. Also, I remember, gosh, when I saw this for the first time, thinking just how young Costner was. And I had been a fan of Costner's work in Silverado and The Untouchables, uh, Bull Durham. Uh, Revenge had come out at this point by the time I saw this movie. And then Dance of Wolves, Robin Hood, Prince of Thieves, JFK, Bodyguard. So I was a bona fide Costner fan. And I watched this going, well, you know, this, you know, let's see what this is about. You know, it's Costner. We can't go wrong here. And he's just young. He's a stud. He's a man's man. And he looks great in a uniform. And I think he was like, man, this guy actually pulls this off. He's good in this. I was like, how did this fly under the radar for me? Uh, Sean Young, sexy, very sexy, very hot. Why wasn't she more of a thing? I remember thinking that when I saw this movie. Even now, you know, even though it was still the mid '90s, and she was still working, just not quite as much. I think her career was starting to cool off or taper off at that point. I remember just the the ticking clock device about this movie. Whenever I I remember just the tension that it created and the suspense that it created. I thought it was very well directed, very well edited and paced in that way. Gene Hackman, what can you say? I miss him because he's retired at this point. That guy is commanding. And the funny thing about it is, I remember. He has a smaller role in this, actually. He has more of a supporting role. I wish he had done more in this film. But Hackman's a stud. Can't go wrong there. One of the other earliest memories I have is of the actor George Zunza, who plays uh, Sam Helselman in this, who's like the uh, uh, computer tech in the Situation Room in the Pentagon. And he's in a wheelchair And spoiler alert, there's the scene where I just always remember this. He just gets shot in the the gymnasium while he's sitting in his freaking wheelchair. It's just like, poor George. Yeah. I just, I get, I get, see, I'm getting a little emotional thinking about it right now. It's okay. It's okay. It's just not fair. But he's great in the film. I'm not going to, to spoil it. But uh, yes, the, there is a twist at the end of this movie. And it is for me, I remember it was like, oh shit. And it worked for me. It worked for me. I loved the twist. Um, and so back to the my, my point is like, how the hell did No Way Out fly under the radar for me? How did I not know about this film? Or, and, you know, we're in the film school, you and I and Marwan and our contemporaries, you know, studying film. And we had this just didn't seem to be in the popular consciousness. It just didn't seem to be like at the forefront of film conversations, conversations and talking about suspense thrillers and this being a like what they call a neo-noir uh, political action thriller. And um, so I went back and I'm like, oh, well, this came out in 87. So what was going on in 1987? I'm going to name just a few films, Bill Bat, that were released in 1987. These films would be Broadcast News, Fatal Attraction, Moonstruck, The Untouchables, Wall Street, The Princess Bride, Dirty Dancing, Lethal Weapon, Beverly Hills Cop 2, Robocop, The Witches of Eastwick, Stakeout, Planes, Trains, and Automobiles, Good Morning Vietnam, and Predator. It's an impressive uh, list there. 
Those are big movies. Yeah, those are big movies. Those are a few reasons why I may have missed out on No Way Out. Although I probably wouldn't have seen it in the theater regardless because I was pretty young and this film has some adult content. However, uh, still, I mean, overshadowed, overshadowed by just a just a murderer's row of huge, huge blockbusters. So that's what I got for the earliest memories. Awesome. How about you, Bill Ban? Um, so for me, uh, what I do remember about this, and yeah, I did not see this in the theater also because it was our movie, 87. This maybe, yeah, teenager there. Um, this came out in the end of the summer of 87. And I remember a lot of stuff on the news about it was about the big limo scene. And it was oh, this yeah. movie, and uh, there was another movie coming out this, around the same time called The Big Easy with Ellen Barkin and Dennis Quaid. And it was the big sex scene in that thing, too. So I was all over the news about the big sex scene in the limo, and the big sex scene between Ellen Barkin. And, and you know, it's like, where's Hollywood going with all these big sex scenes in these films and stuff like that? And, you know, I did see The Untouchables in the theater, so I was a Kevin Costner fan. But initially, I think because it seemed like this whole political Washington DC stuff. I didn't seem that interested in it. And that's maybe why it kind of flew on, you know, the age and just what the topic was just wasn't an interest to me at that time. Good point. I agree. And then I remember my parents rented it on video and they were watching it and I didn't want to bother at the time. And I kind of remember just kind of cutting through the room and there was like a scene on or something. I went, you know, it's like, oh, is this any good? And I, I just got the shh, 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 we're watching this treatment. So I was like, okay, this must be decent if they're, you know, they're totally zoned in. So I eventually did watch it. And yeah, the things you really remember are Sean Young. She only makes it halfway through the movie. Uh, the second big thing is there's a key piece of evidence. It's just a photograph. And they're trying to figure out who's in the photograph. So there's this whole, there's this whole race against the clock, but the, before this photograph is revealed. And then, um, yeah, there's two surprising deaths at the end of the film. One you already mentioned, um, with the, uh, technician who was processing the, the photo, uh, gets killed. And then the other one we'll talk about a little bit later. And yeah, this is definitely under my top five for Kevin Costner. Yeah, we need. Yeah, you know, I'm glad you brought that up because we need to have the Costner conversation here. We'll try to keep it brief, but please continue. But I'll be honest, I haven't seen this movie in a while. But yeah, that that was like my earliest memories of the film, and and it was one of those one of those movies you watch and you're like, oh, why didn't I watch this sooner? It kind of fell into that category. Right. Yes. Exactly. I don't know if I had watched it back, it would have worked as well. So sometimes it's just right place, right time kind of thing. Truer words were never spoken, Bill Bant. I totally agree. Sometimes it really is about the time and place when you saw the film or when and where you, you saw the film, where you w- were at in your life, because it could depend completely on your mood. I don't know if there's films you could name off the top of your head when uh, you were in a bad mood. Or, for instance, right off the top of my head, uh, I remember going to a midnight showing of Terrence Malick's The Thin Red Line, and I couldn't. I hated it. And I fell asleep halfway through. I couldn't stay awake. And then later on, it, that film is just gets better every time I see it. But I was just not in a good place when I saw the film. But then later on, I develop an appreciation for it. Versus there's other movies where I was in a great place and I adore the film because of it reminds me of a great time in my life. And then I'll rewatch it and go, what the hell was I thinking? Right. It's funny for me. It's, it's another Kevin Costner film. It was JFK. Because mm. I went to see that in the theater and... 
because the theater was packed. I was like in the third row. I'm a tall guy. I'm over six foot tall. And just yeah. trying to watch that movie, my neck was killing me. And I just wanted to get the hell out of there. Right. I did not care what happened in the movie at that point. Oh, so. sure. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I'll be honest. I never went back to watch it again. I, I think I need to. Oh, heck yeah. Yeah. So Absolutely. that's the one I had to rewatch. But yeah, it put a bad taste in my mouth just because of the circumstances of watching the film. There you go. See, it happens. Yeah. And I'm glad in your earliest memories that you brought up the photo, which is a great device when you, when you, as a writer, as you know, as well, when there is a time constraint that you place into the story, it is an easy way to develop and nurture suspense. So the photo in this particular film, what ends up happening, our, our main character, Tom Farrell, gets photographed by Susan Atwell. It's a Polaroid photo. And in the moment, he rips the film out of the camera and exposes the negative. So the, the film, the, the picture itself doesn't develop properly, but it ends up becoming a piece of evidence that can be used against him later on. And he doesn't want people to know that he's the person in the photo and it's being processed. And if the photo, when they're trying to figure out what's on this negative, it's just, it's a, that is also one of my earliest memories. I, I forgot to mention that. So I'm glad you brought it up because it's just so cool. Like they plug it into the computer and you see these pixels on the digital TV screen coming together and you know it's him the entire time and he knows it's him. And if they find out it's him in the photo, he's screwed. Let's just put it that way. Uh, I'm oversimplifying it, but it's just a really cool device in the film. And the other piece of technology in this film, which dates the film, but I find very endearing because it is nostalgic, is the printer that's printing up the Office of Protocol Gratuity gift list. But that printer as you, you helped me identify the dot matrix, matrix yeah. printer, which reminded me of the printer I had growing up with, you know, plugged into my Apple IIe, you know, and you hear that, you know, and it has the perforations that you have to tear off and you tear the paper off and it has the holes that you got to feed the paper through the printer. But that's another device in this film that they use very well to create suspense. So I wanted to bring that up really quick. And uh, the funny thing, you know, it made me think of, too, is I talk about uh, costume. Here's my man crush. I'll just let I'm going to come right out. I'm just going to come right out and say it. I have a man crush on Kevin Costner. Always have. I think he's a stud. And, you know, it's funny because I, you always hear about how women tend to love a man in uniform. And uh, that's no secret. And growing up, my dad flew in the Air Force and then flew for commercially for a long time. And whenever I saw him in uniform, my dad... Uh, tall, thin gentleman, six foot four and a half. And when he would wear his uniform, it's like, damn, man, my dad's a handsome dude. He must, I know the ladies are looking his way when he walks down the corridor of the Chicago O'Hare International Airport, right? And uh, that always inspired me like, man, I'd like to get a uniform like that someday or a flight jacket at least or something, you know, it just looks <laughs> good. And so you see Kat Costner in this, like a young Costner. So I'm like, man, that guy had it going. He was doing pretty well. And the funny thing is, Bill Bant, later on in this film, uh, there's a witness that's brought into the Pentagon and he's credited as mate, but he's a character whom Costner and Sean Young rent a boat from up there in the northern coast, right. there, east coast. And he comes as, in, as a witness to try and identify Costner. And in describing him, he says, you know, they are asking, well, what does he look like? Is he tall? Is he short? Is he white? Is he, is he white? Is he black? And he goes, yes, basically. Like, yeah, he's all those things. I don't know. He's average. And I'm like, would you, Bill Bant, would, would you know anybody that would describe Kevin Costner as average? Uh, no, I don't. 
I don't think so. And uh, I just want to applaud you, Jason, for just coming out like that and expressing your, hey, your man love for Kevin Costner. I'm comfortable. I, I applaud I'm you. I'm comfortable. You. And, you know, I'm totally comfortable in saying that. Yeah, I, I kind of chuckled at that, too, when he was just kind of like, I was like, uh, I would at least say, yeah, he's a, you know, handsome guy. And he's taller, too. I mean, Costner is listed at 6'1". So mm-hmm. he's not a short, like you'd, I would probably say, yeah, tall, thinner, good looking guy. Yeah, spiky blonde hair. That's like, yeah, so I would yeah, say. short army crew cut type haircut, whatever, square jaw. I don't know. I just thought that was funny. Yeah, back real quick to the um, Polaroid. Absolutely. Because I thought what was cool about that also as a means of creating tension, because first, the cool thing was the evidence was planted with the intention of framing whoever this was, not even knowing that it was Costner's photo on there. So that that right there was like, oh, that's kind of cool. And the second thing right. was, usually when you have a time constraint, it's usually like a bomb going off or something like that. Like as the audience, you see how much time is left. Whereas with this photograph, they say from the get go, we don't know how long this is going to take. It this could, could take, take hours, twelve hours to a week, right? Something like that. Yeah. So this whole time, Costner does not know how much time he has to right. prove that he is not he is not guilty of this murder. Correct. How much time does he have? Could it happen in the next 10 minutes? Could it happen, you know, tomorrow? Um, I thought that was uh, very clever how they did that, too, where there's no there's no actual countdown. You don't know how much time he has, and he, neither does he. And that just makes him more frantic, and you really see it, where he's just like, I don't know how much time I have. i got to figure this out as quick as possible. Yeah, I was just going to describe for our audience. I, I don't want to do a long-winded recap here, but just to frame it a little bit so people understand kind of we know that Will Patton's the one that puts that photograph in the evidence pile. And the problem is, is that Kevin Costner realizes that, you know, he's the one in that photo and that they're trying to pin this murder on this other man. And he himself is the other man. Right. All the and evidence so, is going to point to him. Right. So he has to slow down the investigation because they're actually coming after him. And he knows he didn't murder her. He knows the secretary of defense murdered her, but he can't prove it yet. He doesn't have the proof, but all the evidence that has been gathered is pointing towards him. And so he's got to slow the investigation down. They can prevent them from figuring out it's him. And in the meantime, also put together the puzzle that the, that Bryce had committed the murder. And again, uh, because in the midst of their love affair, she had taken this photo of him and now it's been entered into evidence. And this photo has been underdeveloped, but because of the computer technology that they're using to develop it, it's slowly appearing. The photo is slowly being developed and appearing on this computer screen. He knows if that photo is developed and they see his picture, they're going to think he's the killer and they'll pin it on him. And that's no bueno. So I thought it was worth explaining a little bit for our audience because this as we may start breaking this down in our podcast can get a little convoluted and complicated. It sounded like uh, Kevin Costner has no way out to be honest when you, the way you explain that. Do they actually say the title in the film at any point? No, I don't think they did. Okay. I always love when they throw that in there, but yeah, no, I know. I love it. But Jason, I do have a confession rewatching this film. Is this the confessional segment? Confess away. Because I haven't watched this uh, in a long time. Uh, it's it's probably been 20 years. And like I said in the beginning that I consider this in my top five Kevin Costner films. The first 35 to 40 minutes, I was kind of like, ooh, 
is this yeah. one of these I rewatch and I don't like it as much as I thought? Because it almost starts off as a prequel to The Hunt for Red October. Because there's this whole thing. They're trying to figure out this whole phantom sub that the Russians are developing. And right. Coster's out there actually on the um, carrier looking for it. And Gene Hackman's trying to cut funding to try to make their own version of this because it's just a sinkhole of money. And I was like, where is all this going? Mm-hmm. And I think because, you know, you're watching the podcast, you, I'm really like intently watching it. I'm trying to take notes and I'm really, really, really paying attention. And I'm like, where, where is this all going? This doesn't make any sense for me. And mm-hmm. even the opening scene between Costner and Sean Young didn't do it for me as much. You mean the meet cute moment when they actually meet at the ball? Yeah. I think Sean Young's hair was driving me. Oh, yeah. I was like, what is up with that hair? It's, yeah, very 80s, first of all, but it's not the best of looks. No. And I thought it was cool. Yeah, like they jump in the limo or whatever, and then they, they do their thing. And then right afterwards, they're like, oh, my name's Tom. I thought that was kind of funny. I have a few comments about that same. And we, we do have to mention Paul Anka's theme song and that that plays overplays that whole so oh, go way out which is yes. actually it's one of the worst it's it's terrible oh that's funny too because of the other song it's very sexy play. scene and they're great in it and there's some lighthearted moments like you mentioned when they actually it finally introduced themselves post coital <laughs> right you know, interaction there but um yeah the theme song is playing during that scene I had an issue with the other one that they play later in in the film too, where I was just like, my God, this is the worst song ever. And then when I was like, oh, it's Paul Anka and and Richard Marks. God, I kind of feel bad, but (laughs) still, it was still crap. So yeah, really in in the first half hour, 45 minutes, I was just not feeling it at all. And I was like, oh my God, I cannot believe I'm going to go on this podcast and say, I don't like this movie at all. It's really bad. And then after Gene Hackman kills Sean Young, then mm-hmm. it, it it kicks into overdrive. And then I was like, oh, thank right. God. Oh, thank God. This, yeah. Now it's getting good. Now the tension's building. And now it's just who knows what and who can tell what and all that kind of stuff. Yeah, that got good. But yeah, the first 35 minutes, most of the stuff that's going on, you I'm almost you. don't need to know. Yeah, it really not until the death. I mean, it's just establishing the character and the relationships like that. But it's all this stuff that you don't need to know later on. All you basically need to know is Sean Young's having an affair with the same two guys who happen to work for each other, and that's it. Everything else, right. yeah, don't, yeah. don't worry about it. It's all this little political thing you think you need to know. No, it's all no, no. It's just kind of it's all set up. You know, it's all set up. I'm in total agreement with you, man. I am because I for, had forgotten how long it takes for them to get to the actual murder of Susan Atwell. And I was like, you know what? I do appreciate the fact that they did take time to develop the relationship between Costner and uh, Sean Young, because you get to go along for the ride and you do see them fall in love. And then when uh, she is murdered, you feel the loss for him. You feel that now, you know, they're probably going to be trying to pin this on him, but he's also has to deal with the fact that, the love of his life at this time has been killed by his boss. Right. And it's like, it's a lot, it's a lot for him to deal with. And I think Costner plays it pretty well. He's got a lot of different levels to play 
in this. And I think he does a pretty good job. Yeah, the fact that it takes so long, you know, it's 35 to 45 minutes to develop. But you're right. I think with some of that political stuff regarding the Phantom sub, it was it all necessary? Probably not. But they made movies differently then. What can I say? If they were to remake this, and I have no doubt they'll probably remake it at some point, it'd be a different movie. They'd get right to it, meaning they'd get right to the murder and then the suspense and draw that out and really focus on the, the ticking clock so you would have an hour and 45 minutes of pure suspense versus kind of this drawn out setting the table. Yeah. If they made it now, she'd be killed. Yeah. 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 She'd be killed. I think that's exactly right. I think it would be within. Yeah. You're right about that 20 minute mark. I agree. All right. Uh, do you want to move on to uh, favorite scenes or moments? Yeah. Let's do it, man. All right. So I'll just do a quick favorite moment. Yeah. Was when Costner gets called in for the investigation and absolutely Scott Pritchard's will Patton. This is right after the murder. Yes. And they're explaining to him, there's this murder of this woman and, you know, Costner doesn't know who it is. And he's like, why are we doing this? And they're like, well, we think the person that murdered this woman is a Russian agent. Yeah. KGB agent. That's been a sleeper agent within the government for years. Yeah. So we don't want to bring in any outside help. We have to do this internally. We want you to put your, you know, you in charge. And then Pritchard, Will Patton hands him the, the dossier on Sean Young. And when Costner opens that and sees who it is, and it's like, oh, my God, his reaction is awesome. It is great. The whole just like, I just need to go to the bathroom for a second. And when he goes to the bathroom and he does that on the floor thing. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's probably what I would have done. Yeah. My, I might have threw up, which he didn't. But, but he really looks like he's about to. Yeah, because not only he's investigating the woman that he has fallen in love with. He knows who killed her too, because he does see Bryce go to her apartment after he leaves. Correct. So there's a slight chance it wasn't him, but yeah, he's 99% sure he already knows who, who did this. So this even makes it worse. And he knows I'm like, I, I can't go back out there and go, you did it. You're the one that did it. You bastard. No, he has to somehow play this out, which I don't even know what you would be thinking at that point. You know you can't point the finger at Bryce, but how are you going to point the finger at someone? That, that really puts you in a corner. Absolutely. I mean, he is between a rock and a hard place. You see, obviously, the look of shock on his face when he first looks at the file and realizes that the woman that has been killed is Susan Atwell, his lover. He just lost his love. And then on top of that, he knows immediately that something is off here. Something's rotten in Denmark because they are not going to the Washington police and they're not going to tell the FBI. They're not going to tell the CIA. They're going to use their own internal investigative division being the CID and Scott Pritchard, who is the general counsel to David Bryce. He says to Tom, we think it's this Russian sleeper agent who is the killer. And that's whom we're going to investigate or try to not only pin it on, but we're going to try and get him. So what Costner already knows at this point is that something's something's not right with this whole, the way that they're handling it. And he knows, like you said, most likely, probably, right, that it's his boss that did it. And this is already going in the way of a cover-up. So, yeah, I mean, how do you deal with all of that information coming at you at once? Great call, man. Great scene. Because, yeah, when he goes into the bathroom and he just drops to his knees, he's like, yeah, you would just buckle at that point. 
And then I love when he exits the bathroom then after that, because I think it's smart about this film. I think it actually, after the murder, when you said, like you said, it kicks into high gear, it goes, it just ratchets up a whole nother notch because that's another, like it's every single moment is tension filled because there are immediately so much, so many different levels and the stakes just go through the roof. We've totally raised the stakes. There's so much at risk. And so after he goes into the bathroom and tries to collect himself, and then David Bryce is saying, Commander, Commander, are you coming out? You know, and he walks out of the bathroom so cool and like collect like yeah. stone faced. Costner's great in that moment. Plays it off perfectly. That really is where the movie kicks off, where it just great point. Great point. Yeah. Good call, Bill. Yeah. All right, Jason, what do you got? So the first scene I'll go with, this is one of my favorite scenes. So the investigation has begun. Let's just go. It's called, it's a cover-up, the cover-up investigation, covering up the fact that David Bryce has had an affair with Susan Atwell and is her killer. So they are trying to pin it on this, like a, a, we know, this uh, sleeper Russian agent, which they believe exists within the government, uh, hasn't been proven, but it's going to work for the time being. And anything to draw attention away from Bryce. So one of the pieces of the investigation is obviously they have to go to Susan Atwell's apartment, her home, collect everything, collect the evidence. Uh, there was no trace of fingerprints. They get a few things. They get a Moroccan jewelry box. They get the Polaroid, which could be you know used. It's very incriminating for Tom Farrell. But also part of the investigation is to trace all incoming and outgoing calls from her apartment mainly coming from the Pentagon. One of the phone calls that they trace is to Susan Atwell's best friend, who is Nina Bika. So Nina is played by a famous model at the time, Iman, beautiful, beautiful African-American actress, model. And Scott Pritchard, who is the general counsel to the Secretary of Defense, says, we need to talk to her to see what she knows. Makes sense. So Kevin Costner, he's got to go with Scott Pritchard to interview her because Kevin Costner has already met her and knows that she will recognize him from previously. And that could incriminate him because she not only saw him, but she saw him with Susan Atwell. So she could tell Scott Pritchard that, oh, yeah, Tom was sleeping with her. And then he's fucked. Let's just say it as it is. I mean, yep. because then Scott Pritchard would be like, oh, you were the other man. We're just going to say you're the one that killed him. So Tom and Scott go to investigate Nina at her apartment. And it's a, another tension-filled scene where Scott's really grilling her. But at the same time, Kevin Costner does a really nice, nice subtle performance here where he takes the lead in this kind of interrogation, when she answers the door, he steps in immediately and says, hi, I'm, you know, Lieutenant Commander Tom Farrell. And he does this thing with his eyes so that she knows she can't say that she knows him. It's unspoken. That's my favorite scene, Jason. Uh, awesome. I love it. Fucking awesome. How is she not going to say something? Right. Yeah. Because she's not 100% sure what she's supposed to say. And then when Pritchard really starts grilling her, mm-hmm. you would think she would accidentally give up the information. 
So you're just like, oh my God, oh my God, yeah, don't say anything, don't say anything. He's leveraging, yeah. Pritchard is like, oh, I see your your visa is not in order or whatever. And uh, we could have you basically deported back to South Africa. And I can make make that happen unless you tell me whom she was seeing, who is the other man. And this is a great Will Patton moment because he, he's doing that thing where he's all calm and cool and collected. Oh, yeah. He's being very professional. And you see the veins starting the to pop. Yep. Who is the other man? And then he does this thing where he's then all of a sudden is like, who is the other man? And it's just like, oh, shit. You scare me, Will Patton. Don't do that. So when he's building and building and, and interrogating her and really putting the full court press I love this. on, you see Kevin Costner standing behind him, quietly removing a bouquet of flowers from a vase and putting his hand around the vase just in case that she breaks and she gives him up, that he's going to have to break the vase over Pritchard's head. He's over Scott's head. He's going to have to knock him out or kill him because he can't be revealed in this moment. And fortunately enough, she doesn't, or she, she doesn't give him up. And uh, Scott Pritchard uh, believes her and says, okay, that will be, we'll take you out of this investigation. And uh, they leave and great little period on the scene. Little capper is then Costner walks right up to her and looks her in the eye and says, thank you for all of your help. Meaning, like, thank you for not giving me up. And it's I mean, that's just so hard so for her. Such a tight scene. Oh, yeah. It's so She's hard for her. Crying. You, yeah, you just She's found out your friend was murdered. And one of the guys that she's seeing is in there in the room and he's acting off. How do you not say anything? How she maintains her composure. Exactly. But it, the whole scene, it works and it's so intense. And with Costner standing behind Will Patton and oh, yeah. when he's just taking the flowers out of the vase as if he's going to use the vase to kill him. It's awesome because it's like right off his shoulder and you just kind of see it's, it's the hand slowly. Wonderfully. Yes. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's wonderfully shot, wonderfully directed, wonderfully performed scene. So that's one of my favorite scenes. Oh, yeah. You got another one? I'm just going to kind of clump these together. Any scene be- with Costner and George Zunza who plays Sam Hesselman. Sam Hesselman is a computer whiz and he leads the computer department uh, there at the Pentagon. Let's just say like tech department there. And uh, he's wheelchair bound, but he clearly has a history with Costner. They go way back. Uh, They have an established relationship, which I think is wonderful. It's great writing. It's really smart because you don't know how they know each other. Right. There's just a brief little back and forth like, oh, you should come by and visit the kids or the kids miss you or something to that effect. Mm-hmm. And you get to the sense there's a history. You buy it hook, line, and sinker. They're friends. So when Costner realizes that that Polaroid photo is a photo of him and he needs to slow it down because he needs more time to prove that the killer was Bryce, he eventually is put in a corner. He has no choice but to tell Sam he has to confide in him and say, look, hey, that's me in the photo. Can we slow this down? I didn't kill her, Sam. I am not the killer. I was in love with her. And then he actually ends up telling Hesselman that, yeah, it was Bryce that killed her. Anyway, there's a few different scenes where he has to go into Zunza's office and quietly reveal something and get him on his side in order to slow this process down. 
and to give himself more time to uh, put the pieces together. And it's just fucking intense, man. It's just, it's nice, quiet scenes. And you see the desperation on Costner's face, but he's trying to keep it together. Zunza wants to believe him because they're old friends and he wants to help him. But at some point it's just, he's in a tough spot because it's highly illegal. It could be of utmost danger. I mean, there's just danger everywhere. So any scene between those two, I love. So I'm putting those all together. Yeah, I agree too. And it's, it's really hard for this movie to pinpoint favorite scenes because like I said, yeah. once you find out what's really supposed to happen, the whole investigation, it's really all just really tension based. So every, everything just mm-hmm. kind of flows in this tunnel that just kind of takes you to the end. And it was really hard to pick out favorite scenes. I think it was just more of just the tension that goes throughout that last hour of the movie is just what makes this movie as fun, exciting as yeah. it is. I agree. And, you know, I was just going to say real quick, too, when I grouping these scenes together, the few scenes with uh, Costner and Zenza specifically, I actually, my notes called it the uh, you can't tell anyone scenes, Oh yeah, which is a great thing in all movies. It's always begins with you can't tell anybody. Right. Right. You can't. Don't, I'm going to tell I'm about to sh- I'm going to share something with you, but you can't tell anyone. Yeah. And immediately now the stakes go up. Right. Because it's like, am I going to be loyal to you or the others? Am I going to take you or the field? It's about the secrets too, right? Now I now I have to keep a secret. Yeah. Now, where does my loyalty lie? Now you're putting me in a position. And he does that to Zunza. It's a hard place to be in, but it, it makes for great, like we keep coming attention, right? And it does lead to a great moment where Sam decides, is like, I cannot keep this information to myself. And he makes the phone call and you just see him talking on one end. He's like, I got to talk. I can't tell anybody what I'm about to tell you. And then you all of a sudden, you, yep. you can't tell him. And you see on the other end, it's Scott Pritchard. And you're like, oh, shit. <laughs> That's right. You're like, oh, man. And then the, it's and all, the, yeah, go ahead. And yeah, and then they meet and he's telling them what's going on. And I certainly did not expect the first time to see what I saw. Pritchard kills Sam right there in yeah. the gym, which at first I was like, oh, they have a gym in the Pentagon. That's kind of cool. Much now. Yeah. Yeah. He's a lo- he's becomes a loose end. Because I'm like, how the hell are you going to cover this up? That scared the hell out of me the first time I saw it. Yeah. I did not expect Pritchard to, to shoot him right there. Like, no, Blake. no, I didn't. Either. And there's that echo. And you, oh, yeah. Zunza's reaction to getting shot is like one of total shock. It's a great reaction. Oh, yeah. When he gets shot. He's like, oh, like, like yeah, it's like, oh, it's fucking brutal. And you really like you've grown to like Zunza in the movie. You're like, damn it. I liked him. He's helping the good guy and he pays for it. But it's kind of like you hear like the cliche line, you know, I'll be right back in horror movies. Yes. But that should be one. Like you can't tell anybody or you can't tell anyone what I'm about to tell you. You are screwed. Do you have uh, any other scenes? No. You got another one? So my favorite scene has to be, it's the big, what I'll just call the blow up scene because this is where it all comes to a head. It's near the end of the film when finally uh, Costner is able to obtain proof that Bryce had a relationship with Susan Atwell, that they knew each other. And most likely thus that if he can prove that, then he can basically bribe him like he can or use it as leverage. He'll, he'll know that Bryce will call off the investigation because if that got out. Right. Even with the evidence, he cannot prove that he killed he her. Prove. Right. 
all he can prove is that there's now a connection. And that's even crazier, right. and too. That would be enough. Yeah. Because in the political world, it would kill him. He's the Secretary of Defense and he's married. And if it comes out that he was having an affair with this socialite, it could ruin him. And if he can get to Bryce's office in time to present that evidence and tell him to call off the investigation, it takes the heat off of himself and stops the investigation. In this scene, then Scott Pritchard, who's been you know trying to manipulate everything this entire time and has a very dark agenda and will do whatever it takes to protect Bryce. And we find out that Scott Pritchard is uh, homosexual and is actually in love with Secretary Bryce. So there's that additional level to this. Is he not only protecting him because of trying to protect his career, his own career, and save him in that way, but he's also doing it out of real love because he deeply cares for him. And so he's got a lot going on and he's always on the edge of cracking. And again, credit to Will Patton and his performance. He's just a masterful actor in my opinion. Anyway, so in this final scene, everything comes ahead because you've got Costner running in, who's ble- his arm is bleeding. He's been cut with a razor blade and He's presenting the evidence to Secretary Bryce going, I know you knew her. You know, I have it right here. I have the proof. And then you have Scott Pritchard running into the scene going, you can't really prove anything. And he's trying to tell Davies, like, don't, you know, don't call off the investigation. We can fix this. And the three of them, in a way, have this little like standoff, but they're grabbing each other. At one point, all three of them are like entangled and they're struggling and it's bloody because he's got Costner's got blood on his arm. Then the, the gun comes into play, and this is where you have Pritchard take the gun, and he realizes there's no way out, or at least yep. that's what he thinks. Oh, yeah. And he, this is a very disturbing scene, spoiler alert, but this is where he's trying to get David Bryce's attention, and it's not working. He keeps saying, David, David. And then finally, he puts the gun to his head, and he just yells, David! And they look at him, and Costner and Hackman have a great reaction, like, oh my God, don't, don't do it. And it's tragic, and Pritchard shoots himself. And then, as a result, they see a way out, funny enough, in that moment, because then they put the murder on Pritchard. Yeah, now they have Yuri supposedly dead on on the floor. And that's, you know, I kind of was watching this. I'm like, is he killing himself because he's been rejected or is he killing himself because he knows if he does it, he will be framed now as Yuri. Oh, good. And it will, and it will, yeah. And it will save Bryce like, because he does say at the beginning, so he was like, he was really himself. sacrificing himself. Exactly. I was kind of thinking, I was like, which way did he go with that? That's smart, Bill. That's smart. I hadn't, I did not look at it like that. The initial cover up was supposed to be that this Russian sleeper agent named Yuri was they were going to pin it on this mythical agent who was going to be the one that killed Susan. And once Scott Pritchard kills himself in this final scene, they realize, oh, we can say that Pritchard was Yuri. He was the sleeper agent. Right. And that thus neatly ties everything up. Uh, so that's my my favorite scene. I just because that's the culmination. Everything comes to a head in that moment. Great performances and super intense. So 
All right, so let's uh, move on to soundtrack. Um, I know you're excited about talk about this one, Jason. Because I am. I couldn't. I just have been looking forward to this segment for a few days now. Right. I'm being. I'm being uh, sarcastic. All right, so we're going to kind of introduce a new segment because usually we have a segment that's called Swiss Cheese where we uh, talk about the plot holes in it, and we've noticed that we kind of stray from that a little bit, and it's more of like complaints or nitpicking. So we're just yeah. going to do the complaint department. So these are uh, moments in the movie that just don't jive with us. So That's right. Got to file some issues. Yeah, so we got to file some issues in the complaint department. What's your first issue you need to file with the complaint department? Right from the get here. Are we, Bill, are we dealing with a, a super creepy limo driver? I had a, an issue right off. The, we got a sexy scene in the limo between Costner and Sean Young. And it, it begins with the limo driver who just can't help him. So he keeps staring in the rearview mirror. Oh, yeah. Trying to catch a glimpse of the action. And I was just like, wow. They cut to him like three times. as He's got this big smile on his face. Luckily, he kind of has a friendly look about him. And then it ends up being a funny moment, lighthearted moment, because Costner, as he's literally undressing Sean Young, she's half naked, uh, looking great, by the way. And he looks to the driver and says, he's like, so what's, what's your name? And he's like laughing because he knows he's staring yeah. at him. And he's like, it's Bill or something. He's like, okay, Bill. It's Billy, yeah. Billy, okay, Billy, you want to push up the slide or whatever, the you know divider thing? And by the way, that was improv by Costner. Yes, I that guess. was a fun fact, yes. Yeah, yeah. So, but I just thought it was funny. Like, man, this dude is being really creepy by just, you know, they really focused. But it, I understand why they did it because then it kind of led into that lighthearted moment. But that was my first uh, complaint. It was like, don't be so creepy. Just give him some privacy. Come on. Come on, limo driver. Billy. God, those damn people named Bill. They're problems. So my first thing I need to file to the complaint department was the car trip on the weekend getaway. Yes. Why are we showing Kevin Costner eating bugs <laughs> off the windshield? <laughs> Even though it's I knew a- it was coming. I have that somewhere in my notes much later on. I think it was going to be like as a joke, a question for you. Have you ever eaten bugs off of a windshield before? Have you ever known anyone to eat bugs off of a windshield? Have you ever seen that before? No. And considering that car was in pristine condition, there wasn't any bugs on there. I was kind of like, is he joking that he's picking bugs off the windshield and eating it? Oh, yeah. Or was maybe. he actually eating bugs off the windshield and what would make you want to do that because i'm sorry if i was dating someone who's eating you're not you're not kissing me afterwards that's for sure i don't, I don't oh my god it. it is disgusting it's yes. totally nasty and i i was thinking like that it seemed like he was being very boyish like that would be something like on a dare Mm-hmm. Some, you know, your your friend would just dare you eat that bug off the windshield and you wouldn't. You'd be like, it's not a big deal or whatever. I'm not done. And then they have a shot. <laughs> <laughs> and then they have a shot of them on the road coming around the corner. And you could totally uh-huh. tell it is stand-ins. And I'm pretty yeah. sure the stand-in for Chong is a guy. Because <laughs> it is a horrible, horrible wig. And oh, that person oh. has so much white makeup on them. I was like, what the hell is that? Yep. And I was just like, oh, that that's just bad. And it's a quick shot, but it's so obvious in that quick shot. I was just like, oh, yeah. It's not- a thing in 80s movies with the driving 
yeah. people because it must have been an insurance thing. And that's come, I think that's something I have in my fun facts and trivia, actually, with Costner. I remember uh, when we talked about romancing the stone that oh, yeah. in the beginning with the kid who hops in the car, full grown man in the car a second later. I'm like, what the hell? It is very funny, though. Yeah. And even when they get to the destination and she screams out the I love Tom Farrell. Right. I found that really awkward and weird, too. Mm. I was just like, oh, that whole scene needs to go. Just cut it out. Just show him getting to the hotel. You got anything else for the complaint department? Here's one thing that always hit me. I just thought of the death scene. When she falls over the banister and she falls through the glass table, we are to understand that she has broken her neck. That's how she died. Right. That's what I, yeah. Yeah. I just think it's a little hazy. Do you, do you buy the death scene? I mean, we get it. She's killed. Understood. It just never played quite right for me. I was just like, would you die falling from that? You know, falling through a glass table would be very injurious, but breaking your neck or dying from that fall. I don't know. It ran through my head too, where I was like, because you see that table and it's got that huge, like ivory leg. We'll just say that they're the legs. Like, it's like, like a base. Yeah. That, sort. Yeah. And I was like, There's something holding oh. up the glass. Tape. Yeah. Yeah. I was like, if we had seen her head hit that mm-hmm. and then the, you know, your blood or whatever, but she totally missed it. I was like, maybe they couldn't, they didn't know how to film it or it just didn't look right. So they just had to show her through, go through the glass. But yeah, I was like, the only way she, she, she would have had to hit that base first and that would have snapped her neck yeah. and then she fell. And then it was funny too, because they do the shot um, above of mm-hmm. Gene Happen looking down on her. And then when Pritchard comes in, you can tell she moved and you see her breathe too. Right, you can. Which, yeah, which you can see her still. Yeah, yeah. Which, which is tough because I'm, I'm like that. That's gonna be hard to do to have a camera on you like that, and you know, be dead, don't move oh, yeah. or whatever. Sure. You do see her breathe, especially if you try to fast forward or slow mo it, because I, I kept going back a couple times too, because I knew I was like, oh no, her body's in a different position, and that's when I noticed at first that you could see her chest go up and down. Right. I watched at normal speed and like oh, I still see it, but they had it on her long enough where yeah, I would have gave it away too. So. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. I, that's I'm I'm uh, always yeah, impressed. Yeah. yeah, when you watch all these like CSI shows oh, and totally. you have all those corpses on yeah. there and stuff, and I'm like, dead. God, how they do that? I'm just like, yeah, so I'm I like their breath for a long time. Yeah, it's like, do you go to class for that? <laughs> it's like, you go to acting class. All right, uh, today's lesson will be on how to be dead. I know you've taken acting class. They don't teach you dead, do they? I've never. I haven't taken that class. I yeah, I never took that one. I, yeah. I was sick that day. I guess. <laughs> okay. But yeah, that's that's funny. But yeah, that always hit me. I was like, man, would you die from that? Because she doesn't fall that far. Like you would, you'd be seriously injured, but not. Yeah, exactly. So I was always just, I'm like, man, they should reenact us on Mythbusters. Exactly. Throw somebody over a banister through a glass table. See if they die. I think that'd be a good idea. Uh, do you have any other uh, issues to file? Oh, yes. Uh, compl- oh, good. Good. I have a few more too. Go for it. So there's a lot of running in this movie. Yeah. And of course... You know, the first actor that pops in my head that mm-hmm. I was like, should have been in this movie is Tom Cruise. Yeah. Because we all know he loves to run in his movies. He's the runner. He's the runner. So guy. I want to point out one runner in particular. So Contra number two. Hell yeah. <laughs> I, just, I have it. Dude. Yeah. yeah. I'm like, if you are auditioning for a movie where you have to run a lot. Run. Wouldn't you want to watch the actor run first to see if they knew how to run? Because he has one of the most awkward running styles. 
it's hilarious. Exactly. It's like his arms don't go above his hips and they do this weird. So, you know, we're on podcast. You can't see. Exactly. He's like his arms are flailing about at his sides. He's running awkward. Yeah. Yeah. So Christy, who played Contra number two, not to be confused with Marshall Bell, who was Contra one. How do you even get this guy? He's like a a band leader, punk rocker. I'm like, there's tons of people you could have got to play this role and you audition that they can run. I know for me, when I was with the Dolphins and we had it, we actually had to audition people like when the team came out on the field and people had to bring flags out, they would have to run them out in the field. I had to audition those people to make sure that they could pick up this flag and run it 50 yards without having a heart attack. Right. And some people couldn't do it because the flag was really heavy and the wind resistance like that. So I was like, yeah, you had to audition for that. So I'm thinking a movie where you have to run for at least 15 minutes in this movie. I need to see if you know how to run first. Right. <laughs> I'm sorry, Christy, you should have not gotten this role because you do not know how to run. Yeah, no. I, I would have called Tom Cruise. I'm like, hey, Tom, we got a movie, yeah. a lot of running in it. You don't, we're not going to give you any lines. We just, we just need you to run. Yeah, that or just bring him in as a running consultant. Exactly. So because like, wait, here, Tom, Tom, listen, we, yeah, we show- cast these people. We don't know how they got cast, but they can't run for shit. We need you to come in and teach them how to run their ass off and look intense and sweat, but sexy. And Tom be like, I got it. I got yeah. it. I got you, man. Just give me five minutes. I got it. So, uh, yeah. Yeah. So that's my complaint for the complaint department. I could just see Tom yelling at him. He's high pitched, like getting really upset. Oh, yeah. High pitched voice. You need to learn how to run. <laughs> I know the law. I know He's how to run. The car. Yeah. <laughs> I know how to run. Right. I could I could see him watching the movie going, what the <laughs> fuck? Jesus. Um, All right. What else that is like so that was going to be my joke when I brought it up is that, yeah, contra number two, arms flailing about, doesn't know how to run, that now I've just decided that we need to critique every actor's not only diving ability as I've done in the past, but running ability. Yes. Like we could just put it under the category, like, like people talk about athletic ability in general. But from right now, just I'm going to be keying in on running ability and diving ability from now on. Because it's just like, come on, guys. If you have, again, same kind of thing. If you got to dive in a movie, dive, dive well, you know, dive properly. Act like you've been here before. So uh, other issues I would like to file with the complaints department. So they bring in witnesses into the Pentagon to identify the killer whom is supposedly this Yuri, this Russian agent. And they bring in, as I had mentioned, the the gentleman who was renting the sailboats up in Chesapeake Bay because he's the one that rented the boat to Costner and Sean Young. And so they bring him in and then they bring in the bellboy from like the bed and breakfast where they stayed yes. the hotel. Could they let the bellboy change out of his uniform for the witness walkthrough? Oh, I know. That poor son of a bitch. I, I'm like, <laughs> exactly. that poor kid. He's wearing his like fluffy, what was that, ruffled thing? Because he looks like a, a colonial, like yes. revolutionary war. I mean, it's the idea is here for the, you know, the listeners. The bellboy from the hotel where they go on their little getaway weekend early in the film, he's in costume. It's like a, it's a themed revolutionary war period clothing. So... But when they bring him in as a witness later in the film, he's literally still in his costume. Oh, yeah. And he's got to walk around in his costume. I'm like, 
just let the poor guy change. But yeah, give him a jacket or something. Or something. Also, one issue which I didn't I didn't think about this, but I kind of went to myself. I said it out loud when I saw it in the film. Was like, there's a Pentagon mall. There's a oh, mall yeah. in the Pentagon. Yeah, I've never been. I guess there, that's so. a real thing, which makes sense. There's like I've read this in the the research. There's like anywhere from twenty two to twenty five thousand people that come in and out of the Pentagon every day. So you would make sense that they would have people are spending the day and night probably there sometimes because of the work they do. They would have to have shops probably there and uh, maybe a food court, a mall type of thing there. I just didn't really enter my mind until I saw this. I was like, oh, there's like a mall at the Pentagon. That's weird. Okay, so this was really funny. This isn't even an issue. This is just really funny, but this was something that the filmmakers planted in the movie. So this will be my last so-called issue is that uh, we mentioned earlier that one of the devices in the film is, is there's this printer where Tom Farrell played by Kevin Costner keeps checking this printer. He's looking for this gift that will be on this list that's being printed out and it's not showing up. So he keeps looking for it because it's an p- important piece of evidence that will tie Bryce to uh, Susan and he needs to prove this and he's got to find it. So you keep the camera focuses in on the actual piece of the paper and you see the list printing up and you see the gifts, the gratuity list come up. So you see the actual label, you see the gifts. One would be like, you know, gift box, jewelry box, necklace, Cuban cigars, something like that. And as Bold a joke, vest. Yeah. Bold, yeah, that's one. One is actually belly dancer, harem girl. Oh, I missed that one. It's hilarious. And it was meant as a joke. They put it in there. Because these are supposed to be gratuity. It's supposed to be a gift from a foreign minister, basically, to someone. So so it's implying that a foreign country had offered an actual belly dancer or harem girl as a gift to an American politician. But then in parentheses, right below it, it says declined, as if the gift was not accepted. I totally missed that. Yeah, you got to look for it. It's pretty funny. So that's all I got, man, for, for issues. I got Yeah, I got one more complaint for the complaint department. Do it. Complain away. The daring rescue at sea <laughs> that gets Tom Farrell in the paper. <laughs> that was lame. <laughs> that was lame. Not, I, I mean. I'm about what, to be blasphemous here, but yeah. Continue. I mean, what he did was heroic, saving another crew member. <laughs> I don't have an issue with that. But the fact that that would get written up and put in a paper of any sort. I thought you were going to say something else, but you're you're talking about the act itself was just kind of like not quite. Yeah, because I'm thinking in order to get the attention of Bryce, Mm -hmm. it should have been something else where they find a, a ship that's sinking at sea or something like that. And they save the people because, I mean, technically they're on a secret mission because they're trying to catch up to a sub that is supposedly, like I said, the prequel to the red October. Yeah. So no one knows that they're out there. So how would this information get back that Farrell rescued someone on the boat? Mm-hmm. I like the scene itself, but just in the context, I was like, no, right. that doesn't work. It had to be something bigger. It had to be something bigger that would have got the attention of Bryce who then wants to bring him in to work under him. Not that he saved a shipmate who shouldn't have been it. out there to begin I'm with. I'm with you on that. Yeah. Uh, yeah. 
I hear you. It's it's yeah. It's just what he did to get noticed. I found lame. Not that yeah. you know. I like the scene. I did like the scene. It just, but I was just it like should have been so, a little bit more something, a little more effective. Exactly. In, in little even more impressive, probably to get the attention of the Secretary of Defense. Something exactly, because you know anybody would more have involved done it. Something. Yeah, no, it's great. I thought you were going to bring up just from a, like a special effects uh, perspective. Oh no, it's no, no, the no, classic. There's a boat. You see nothing. It's just darkness in the background. They're clearly on a, like a gimbal of some sort in a tank and a studio backlot. Oh no, that's that's fine too. Because waves are crashing over, uh, which just reminded me of the beginning of Last Crusade. I uh, oh, I totally went there the too. It's just the worst. I look. I adore it. I'm miss, like I'm all about Indiana Jones. But that scene in the beginning of Last Crusade when he's on the ship uh-huh. and it's just like literally people on the side of the ship just throwing buckets of water onto the, the deck. Right. Like this could not be more fake. Mm-hmm. And that's kind of what reminded me of when I watched this scene in No Way Out because it was like this boat's rocking back and forth and these waves are crashing. But, you know, it's not they're not really on the ocean. Oh, no, not at all. I think even if they tried to re- recreate it in the ocean it might not look that much different. So it's like, everyone knows it's going to be fake. Might as well just fake it. You are absolutely right. That's where I, I have to take a step back and go, Jason. Does it matter? Does it really matter? No, but you're right with Last Crusade. It does look yeah. cheesy. It does look <laughs> cheesy. So bad. It does look cheesy, though. So so that's what we got for the complaint department. Um, let's move on to our next segment. It's, hey, it's that actor. All right. So in this segment, we spotlight a character actor you have seen in many other films, an actor making their big screen debut, or an actor that makes an uncredited cameo. Jason, who's your, hey, it's that actor. All right. Well, Bill Bant, you named him already, as a matter of fact. You did. Yeah. Contra number one. I'm going with Marshall Bell because uh, immediately, as, as soon as I saw him, I'm like, and this is really the only other film I know him from, even though I know I've seen him in numerous films. And just look at his IMDb, folks. Marshall Bell, Contra Number One, in No Way Out, was also he had two character names: George slash Quato, Quato, in Total Recall, the uh, classic 1990 Paul Verhoeven film starring Schwarzenegger. So yeah, because when I saw him, I'm like, oh my god, it's Quato, it's Quato. Yes. <laughs> You're waiting for the, the creature to come out of of his chest, which is super creepy. So because for those of you who haven't seen total recall, this actor plays this, this character in total recall where this like kind of fantastical creature uh, basically is living within his chest cavity. And this character opens his jacket. And then this little creature like comes out of his chest and starts talking. And it's really fucking creepy. And the creature is called Quato and open your mind. Yeah. Open your mind. Quaid. Quaid. <laughs> <laughs> yes, that's it. So the actor, <laughs> you couldn't see at home, but Bill is doing the hand motion that he does. <laughs> uh, I'm crying. That's brilliant. Um so Marshall Bell, and I'm going to give a quick shout out to another, hey, it's that actor. I don't think I'm going to step on your toes here. I hope not. I'll let you, let me, I'm going to let you do yours first, just in case. No, uh, Marshall Bell was a great pick. He was, he was in my running for, hey, it's that actor. Yeah. But actor I picked was um, David Paymer, who was uh, the, the technician. 
Yep, I got him. You got, got him, him too? Awesome. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. So, yeah, he played one of the technicians uh, in the basement of the Pentagon, and he got yelled at by Sam because he wanted him to alter the photo technology to help slow down the process because at that point, Sam knows that Tom Farrell, Kevin Costner, is in that picture, so he's trying to buy him some time. And the technician's like, no, we're doing it right. And Sam's like, no, change it. And he's like, okay, okay. Yep. David would go on a couple of years later and he would be um, nominated for Best Sporting Actor in 1993 for Mr. Saturday Night. Yeah, he's great. He's in a ton of stuff. And uh, yeah, it was kind of fun to, to see him in this. And I think he maybe has like three. Oh, yeah. He's the one that finally is like notices when the photograph is finally developed and we see. That's right. So he's like, the one uh, like, oh, my God. It's Commander Farrell. So uh, David. Payne, yeah. Is my when I, I saw him, I immediately think of uh, Ocean's 13, actually. Oh, really? <laughs> yeah. He's credited as VUP, not VIP, but like VUP. But he basically goes to the hotel in Ocean's 13 to give it a rating, basically. He's going to review the hotel. And they purposefully make his life a living hell in this hotel. Oh, that's right. And okay. So he... Like when he goes into his room, the room, the bed is infested with bed bugs and they screw up his reservations at the restaurants and the hotel. Like they just really screw him. But then at the very end of the movie, they've rigged the slot machines. And of course, they've rigged one of them in like the airport. Brad Pitt subtly is like, hey, you should play this machine. I hear it's, you know, right hot and gives yeah. leaves a coin or something. And then he wins the, the pot, the slot machine at the end. Again, he wins the whole thing. And, uh, so it was like, okay, here's your reward for putting up with the whole thing. So that's what I always think. But yeah, he's great. He's great. Yeah, he's he has a, such a small, small role in this. But Yeah, he's a great character actor and, and glad in a way he got that uh, nomination because it got, it got a more high profile. I mean, he never he's definitely not a leading guy, but he always puts in a good performance. And uh, I, was, I was happy to see him in this one. Yeah, I agree. And I, I was going to give a shout out to Dennis Berkeley. Who plays the mate again? The 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 heavy set gentleman that rents the boat. Oh yes, to uh, Costner and Young. He comes in later as a witness, and they're walking around doing a walkthrough through the Pentagon. And he's the one that says, "What I'm trying to tell you is the son of a bitch is average." And uh, so he goes on to reunite with Costner in Tin Cup. Yep, he's one of his guys. He plays Earl in Tin Cup, and he's great. And unfortunately, uh, Berkeley passed away at an early age, but he's a great character actor. He's in a lot of stuff. Shout out to Dennis Berkeley. Yeah, we definitely had a couple to choose from. And the yeah. others that you mentioned, yeah, they were they were on my radar too. But I was like, oh, I gotta go with the gotta go with the one that got nominated for an Oscar. So So I have one last hey, it's that actor. Oh, go for it. I'm gonna tell the audience to verify this for me. I've Googled it, I've researched it, it oh. appears to be true. Okay. And I've watched the scene and I just can't. I'm like, oh, yeah. Does he, Jason, does he show up around the 36 minute mark of the movie? It's, it's, I, I believe that would be right. That would be correct. All right. Go for it. The scene, there's, it's another ball and it's another scene where Costner, yeah, Costner goes to another official party of sorts. So he shows up in uniform and because then he, we know that Sean Young's going to be there with David Bryce. And so it's a lot of politicians walking around, shaking hands, kissing babies and doing the thing and partying. And uh, lo and behold, there's an extra behind Costner who shows up a few times and he looks eerily similar to one Brad Pitt. And 
from the research I did, supposedly that that was one of his early extra roles before obviously he has a larger part in Thelma Louise a few years later. But I mean, uh, anyway, so yeah, look for it. Uh, I guess, is it the 36 minute mark? Yeah, I wrote it down um, because I had the same thing too, where I saw it and then I watched the scene on YouTube and it's funny because everyone goes back and forth. Like every comment says, oh, that's him. The other person's like, no way, it's not him. But I think what gives it away is like the first time you see him, you see him over Kevin Costner's shoulder and you're not sure that it's him because it actually looks older. But then I'm like, the shot's kind of blurry. So you're not sure. Yeah. But then there's a scene where Costner literally walks by him. Yeah. And Brad Pitt laughs. Correct. And I'm like, oh, that sounds like him. It even sounds like him. Exactly. So that's why I'm like, yeah. You can get one or the other. I don't think you can get both. It's not like they're like, oh, let's put, they don't know who the hell Brad Pitt was in there. They're not going to put in that someone else's laugh. So I think it's him. It might not be in that first shot, but it's definitely him in the second shot. Yeah, yeah. So there you go. Yeah, so go to the 36-minute mark where it starts, Yeah, where they're at the ball, and you'll see him over the shoulder, and then they go to leave, and he literally walks right by him, and you hear someone laughing. That's Brad Pitt. Yep. Okay, so let's move on to uh, facts and trivia. Jason, you have any facts and trivia we did not discuss already about this? Right. <laughs> uh, so No Way Out uh, was based loosely on the book The Big Clock from 1946. I mistakenly did not write down the, the author. Oh, it's uh, Kenneth Fearing. Thank you. There were actually two film iterations prior to No Way Out based on The Big Clock, one being aptly titled The Big Clock in 1948, and the second film was called uh, Police Python 357. That was released in 1976. I believe that was a French film. And um, those have very different plots. I shouldn't say that. Similar plots, just different characters and kind of different situations. Uh, Yeah, there were actually two films based on this book before No Way Out. I didn't know this, so this was new new to me too. And then when I was doing looking into the first movie, The Big Clock, which came out in 1948, I was looking at the cast and I'm like, holy crap, I need to see this movie. Um, So it stars uh, Ray Balland, who we know from The Lost Weekend and Dial In for Murder, Charles Lawton from Mutiny on the Bounty and Spartacus, and then uh, Marino Sullivan, who was the original Jane from the Tarzan, the eight man in 1932. And then also in this movie was Harry Morgan from mash. Wow. And Elsa Langchester, who was the bride in the bride of Frankenstein. So I'm like, I need to get my hands on this movie and then see this. Bill, Cause man, yeah. doing a deep dive. Man. Oh yeah. I'm impressed. Look at you go. And um, so I guess the setting for this one, instead of political, it's more of um, Ray Millard is the head of like a magazine company has mm-hmm. a mistress that he right. kills that, that kind of thing so yeah i definitely have to check this one out big clock 1948 there you go kick-ass cast thank you for that man so yeah also the, the movie's insurance company was not thrilled about costner doing his own stunts this is where you do see actually though that costner is a well-established uh, athlete like i mean he's he's an athletic dude the guy now speaking of somebody who can run uh, and he actually, if you you can find some early interviews of him talking about this film and how he said, yeah, I'm committed when I'm running. I'm actually pretending to be running for my life. Mm-hmm. Uh, and he looks great doing it. However, in one of these great reveals in the interview, in, in the research, it talks about the movie's insurance company wasn't crazy about him doing his own stunts. Also, 
they didn't like the fact that he was driving without his glasses because he can't see very well. And he was supposedly had like these, I don't know, prescription glasses, but he wouldn't wear them. And he just wanted to drive like, because his character doesn't wear eyeglasses. So he just wanted to wear, you know, to drive and he did it. He drove, they let him drive and that was very dangerous. (laughs) The funny thing is though, in the interview, you can find it on YouTube is that the interviewer says to him, so I had done some research and found out that supposedly, you know, you don't see, you know, you needed to be wearing your glasses, but you refuse to wear. And he's like, nope, I don't wear glasses. I don't wear your contacts. And it was like awkward for a moment. And the interviewer goes, oh, sorry, I did some research. And I thought you, he's like, no, no, you're right. I, I can't see. <laughs> I can't see very well, but I don't wear glasses. I don't wear contacts, but I just can't see very well. And yeah, I drove the car and I, sh- you know, basically shouldn't have. It was just, a, it's a really funny moment in the interview because the research is incorrect. He, he just can't see very well. Right. That's and hilarious. refuses to, he just doesn't wear glasses though. He doesn't care. I know I'm coming up to that point too, where I'm just going to be like, nope, I'm not going to wear glasses to contacts. Yeah. I'm just not going to see. That's fine. Everything's just, yeah. I'd like to see things a little fuzzy. Yeah. Why not? Just to expand on the uh, limo scene. Yes. So... Yeah, you know, we talked about where, you know, we had the the driver who was very, ooh, look, look what's going on back here. And uh, Costner improvised that line. Right. So supposedly the story behind that was that Costner was really nervous about doing that scene and felt very uncomfortable doing it. Right. And so they're, they're shooting the scene and he didn't tell the director that he was doing this. He literally turned and just looked off the camera and just did that line. Like, hey, what's your name? And then came up with the Billy. And like he said, when he was doing it, he actually heard the director and the director of photographer look at each other like, what is he doing? Right. And then said, yeah, put the thing up and then turn because he's like, he's like, because I felt so nervous. He's like, I don't want anybody watching what's going on. Yeah. So they actually had to film the stuff with the limo driver. They supposedly filmed that like six weeks later to match that. Oh, that's how, that's how improvised that was. Gotcha. Where they didn't know about it. But they liked what he did, and so they kept it in there. That's interesting. Okay. So, they, yeah, they didn't know he was doing it. He, he was just so nervous, and he's like, what would I actually be doing in this situation? And that's what right. made him turn off and just be like, hey, can you just put that down? So, so he almost felt like he had more privacy. So there's a little deeper dive into the, yeah, the limo. That's great. Good stuff. I love that shit. That's great. Anything else for facts and trivia? Yeah, I'm just going to run through some casting uh, possibilities here. Oh, Mel we- Gibson and Pat. Oh, go ahead. Sylvester Stallone? No, I know. Damn. Well, that's a given. Come right. on. All right. This one we know sure. that Sylvester Stallone was up for every single leading man role in the 1980s. In the 80s, 90s, and up until today. Yeah. So Mel Gibson, Patrick Swayze turned down the role of Tom Farrell, supposedly. Michelle Pfeiffer turned down the role of Susan Atwell, supposedly. According to the research, Priscilla Presley actively pursued the role of Susan Atwell. Priscilla Presley. Hmm. Kevin Costner reunited with two of his co-stars, Gene Hackman and Will Patton. Gene Hackman in Wide Earp and Will Patton in The Postman. Sean Young said in an interview that while she was fine being naked in certain scenes, Kevin Costner, who was dressed, was very nervous about her being nude. Mm-hmm. So he was a little bit awkward in those situations. I mean, understandably so. He had a kind of an issue with her being nude and he's fully dressed and it just... Uh, 
I don't know if you'd read this as well in your research, Bill, but uh, supposedly she, the director had her lift her shirt in an audition. That's according to her. Yeah, I saw that too. But we don't know if that's true. That was something supposedly she said in a couple of interviews. I mean, unfortunately, I can believe it, but. Yeah, different time. And yeah, that's unfortunately not, not a good time. No, not a good time. All right, moving on. Um, box office. Um, so this movie opened on August 17th, 1987, the same day as one of our other old podcast films, Can't Buy Me Love. Yeah. On a budget of roughly $15 million, it made uh, 35.5 domestically, which, adjusted for inflation, was $83.1 million. So it did pretty well. Yeah. Did only debut at number four in that first week behind Camping Buy Me Love, which was number three. But it did peak up to number two on its third week of release. But the movie it could not get past was the 1987 sleeper hit Stakeout, which you mentioned earlier, yeah. too. So that was, yeah, that was rule in the box office uh, in late in the late summer months. Uh, moving on to reviews. Uh, when growing up in the 80s, there was nothing more exciting than catching at the movies with Gene Siskel and Roger Ebert on PBS to hear the reviews and see some clips from upcoming movies. Their review for No Way Out was split. Mm. Roger gave it a thumbs up for the performance and story, while Gene gave it a thumbs down because he found the performances wooden and uninteresting, except for Will Patton. There you go. Yeah. My man. There you go. WP. All right, Jason. Um, we're already up to final thoughts. So what do you got some final thoughts for No Way Out? Yeah. You know, look. I'm just going, I'm just going to, these are kind of general thoughts or deep thoughts uh, by Jason Masick. And some women just look dangerous, Bill Bant, or they perfected the dangerous look, uh, or they've perfected several kinds of looks, but there's some that just, you can tell they're just bad news, but in the best way. I just have a <laughs> knack for finding these, these girls and I'm very attracted to that look. And Sean Young has perfected that. It's just one of those things when she gives that look at the, when you, she's first introduced at that inaugural ball at the beginning of the film. And she gives these glances over to Tom Farrell. This is not going to be good. You can't refuse her. I'm just going to comment on that. Also, I love Kevin Costner, man. I do. I know I've been talking a lot about Will Patton and uh, I'm a big Kevin Costner fan. And I talked about my man crush, but also something that I'm just going to call from now on the Costner confidence the guy, and again, I'm going to, to reference the interview. You can see it when he was, gosh, in his early 30s then, uh, but you see it now even in interviews. The guy just exudes confidence. Sometimes it comes off a little bit cocky, but he's never bullshitting. He believes everything he's saying, and he knows what he's talking about, and he walks the walk, and I admire that about him. He knows filmmaking. He knows acting. He knows the business. He knows what his role is. He knows who he is and what he's good at. And I think he's mastered it. And that's just my opinion. So we can get into the Costner conversation because I just find it interesting because I am a fan and Bull Durham is up there for me, probably my top five for sure. Field of Dreams. I don't know where, gosh, where to put Untouchables. I don't know if that would be in my top five necessarily. But uh, I'm a big Dance with the Wolves guy, too, though. And there's a lot of Kevin Costner, I don't know if you call them detractors out there or critics out there. And I always say, okay, well, I'm going to name some movies 
that Costner was in. And you tell me if you like these movies. And then you go down the list, man, especially those that mid eighties, early nineties and people, it's undeniable. You know, these are great movies. He's made a lot, a lot of great movies. So inevitably you name these movies and people are like, Oh yeah, I love that movie. Yeah. Well, that's Kevin Costner, man. Like, you know, you can't stop, stop bashing the guy. And obviously he's got, just gotten a lot of prison, you know, like water world was, you know, that was one of the biggest busts in a while, you know, at that time. And oh, there's things like that. But I mean, I think actually, I think he's quite a good actor and I think he's a great movie star to be honest. So that's my take on Costner. Uh, did you want to share a deep thought or two? Yeah, I agree. I, I'm a Kevin Costner fan. And one of my all time favorite movies is it's in my top 10 is dance with wolves. I love that movie. I saw that opening night when it came out. And even though that movie was three hours or whatever, it felt like it was like 10 minutes. And I adore that movie. And I, and I know, you know, people will say, you know, with Goodfellas and I totally get their argument and I'm not going to fight with them on it too. That's fair. That's fair. Yeah. It's not like Oscar gets it right every year anyway. But yeah, I'm I'm a fan of his and Untouchables and like I said, just his baseball films and all that kind of stuff. So say what you will. Uh, yeah, I'm definitely on the Costner side. Uh, but yeah, I just wanted to share a quick story because um, watching this r- movie it reminded me of uh, something from my past. So out of college, um, I was working for this company. It was um, sports entertainment company. It's called Sports Magic Team, and we would actually do shows at nhl games nba halftime shows um i got to perform at the major league baseball world series one year nhl all-star fan fest in the game one year so i got to do all these cool things so one of the places i got to go was washington to do a isl so it's indoor soccer league the team was called the washington warthogs so it was indoor soccer i guess we had an eight game package with them and normally you go in groups of four to do the shows or whatever and for some reason, whoever was supposed to do the final show couldn't do it. So they flew me in to do the last show. And when we were there, the head of the girl who was head of production was like, oh, we got this big surprise for you when the game's over. And we're like, surprise, you know, what's what surprise? She's, you know, just she's just, just, you know, just thanks for all the great work you've been doing and all that kind of stuff. The fans really loved you. And, you know, hopefully we'll have you back. So the game's over. We all pack up our stuff and we're leaving the arena. And there's literally a limo sitting out front of the arena. And we're all joking like, ha ha. Oh, that's, that must be our limo. Oh, it must be a limo that's going to be taking us to wherever. And head of production's like, uh, yeah, that is your limo. Get in. And we're like, what? So we throw all our stuff in the back of the limo. And then she takes us to a liquor store and she goes, uh, go in, get whatever you guys want. And we're like, sweet. So we go in, you know, get a six pack or whatever. And um, so we get back in the limo and she's like, all right, we're going to take you to the sites in Washington. And so we got to go to uh, the Washington Monument, Vietnam Memorial and um, uh, the Lincoln Memorial. I've been to Washington before, so I've seen these before. But Jason, to experience this stuff at night is amazing because Ah. this stuff is lit like it would be in a movie. And we got to go up, we got to go up in the Washington Monument, which was awesome. And I would have to say it was one of the most memorable nights of my life. I like remember it like it was yesterday. And for anyone that has gone to Washington and seen the stuff during the day, if you have the opportunity to see it at night, please do so. Even seeing the Vietnam Memorial, the way, because, you know, it's like that black granite. Uh And to see it at night, the way it's just lit, it's gorgeous. 
It yeah. is breathtaking. Just seeing the monument itself is just just the emotion it, it swells because of you know all that stuff. But just to see it at night because there's like nobody there either. So it's just it was just amazing when they get the limo in the beginning and go take us through the sights. I'm like, I didn't do it with Sean Young, but it was still uh, it was still an amazing time. So yeah, yeah, if you ever get to see this the sights at night in Washington, please please do so. I ah, that's great, man. Great recommendation. Great story. Thank you. Thanks for for telling that for relaying that. That's cool. I can imagine how just how impressive it would be because I have not done that. I haven't experienced it, but now I want to. Oh yeah, especially at night. But I love that recommendation, man. Yeah, it does sound romantic, and I mean that like in the idealistic sense, you know. And I'm sure you, like you said, you just feel kind of the the power of the memorials and the reverence and the true awesomeness of it all. In the classical sense. Yeah, it was cool, too, because, you know, here I'm my work friends, but there was still that kind of, I don't know, there's, there's an aura about it, too. It's kind of like going to Pearl Harbor. I, I totally agree with you, by the way. that That's one I have been to, and you feel the presence. Exactly. There is a presence there. There is something that is almost overwhelming that you can't, You, it's a sensation. Yeah, because it's got that feel where it's like during the day when you go, there's there's tons of all these people and tourists and stuff like that. Whereas night, it's not as crowded. So you really have the time to appreciate the craftsmanship of the Lincoln Memorial or the you know Vietnam Memorial or just the Washington Monument, how massive it is. And supposedly there's no cement. It's just bricks that all sit on top of each other and just like, wow, this is a major work of art. So I know we need to wrap this up here, but... Uh... I did want to give another shout out to Will Patton just because I wanted to say a few like because of his quotes, because I just want to mention how he's puts on a clinic as an actor. He, what he does is what he plays the opposite. Meryl Streep is known for doing this too. It's kind of like showing the opposite of what you're actually feeling internally or what the audience knows, what you, the character must be feeling internally. So whenever he's frustrated, a lot of times in this film, you'll see him smile Mm -hmm. when you know, he's just burning up inside. Oh yeah. Uh, or the anger is is building, but some uh, so his diction, his enunci- uh, his enunciation, the like I tell the building and the yelling, like the who was the other man? And this is the one thing that I'm going to say to you now from now on, Bill, because I love the way he says this when he comes in and slams the door behind him, and he's going to let Costner have it, and he just says, "That was a stupid, stupid thing that you did." <laughs> that's what I'm going to say to you from now on, Bill. That was a stupid stupid thing you did the way he says it and he kind of over enunciates like oh, all yeah. the consonants uh say there's i have no other choice but to make sure you didn't get away with it and like it like mm-hmm. it just hits those cuts it's just great and he has a great line at the end in that font my favorite scene in the finale when he says uh, you have no idea what men of power can do he's awesome so there are some other great moments in it. I love George Zunza's uh, bumper sticker on the back of his wheelchair that says, of course, I'm drunk. I'm no stunt driver. So we talked about Costner. A little bit. Oh, I wanted to mention this. My sister met Costner. Oh, really? To mention, yeah. In Arizona. I believe they were shooting Tin Cup. Oh, OK. If I'm not mistaken. So it was around that time. She was in school and uh, I think she was at a local spot playing pool and uh, she shot some pool with him. Oh, that's he, wanted, awesome. he asked her to play with him. He actually asked her. Like he came up. My sister's a, an attractive girl, and uh, I should say woman. Now she's. It's funny. Oh, well, she's my my little sister. But uh, right. she said he was super cool. She he said she said that 
he was tall. He was cool. Very nice. There was a bodyguard there with him. And she told him that, yeah, my brother's out in LA trying to be an actor mm-hmm. and that he just kind of laughed and that was uh. it. shrugged it off. It's <laughs> like, whatever, man, whatever. You don't know me. You don't know me, Casey. This is what I really want to know. Did you win? Oh, she beat no. him? you'll have to ask her. I, I'll have to, uh, you know, when the next time I talk to her. All right. Send me an email. Did you yeah. win? All right. Uh, but I thought that was cool. And that, uh, that uh, you like to hear that he seems like he was a nice guy. So, um, yeah, I had some other questions. Oh, yeah. Have you ever wanted to hide in a ceiling vent before? Oh, man. Another thing that's been used in so many movies, right? Yeah. Climbing through vents, ceiling vents, you know, whether it's Die Hard or in this film or Mission Impossible, you know, it's a, there's always a ceiling vent they have to escape through, right? That's exactly. The, that's like the hiding spot because you can't go under the bed. No. Closet it's the last place you want to be, but the ceiling vent. You, you wouldn't have made it up in time. They would they would have saw me like, you know, half dangling. Like my legs would have been kicking my way up in there. I would have got caught. And the fact they kept his uniform still white after that. You know how oh, dirty you know how dirty that would be up there? I don't care if it's Pentagon. Yeah. They're not cleaning up behind the vents. He had to change his pants a few times in this movie. Yes. I mean, I've always still secretly just wanted to hide in a ceiling vent, though, just for the hell of it. Oh, yeah. Just to, you know, to spy on people and to scare the hell out of somebody. Yeah, elevator. Like and, then you're, and then you realize, like, in the elevator, it's, like, two inches wide. And you're like, I can't get right. in here. Or <laughs> or it's, like, that cheap cardboard thing. Yeah, exactly. I'd, like, I'd or fall right fall through. through. I'd fall yeah. through. Yes. They do that in the office. There's a great <laughs> It's the, they do a, a fake fire or uh, set off like a fake fi- fire drill because uh, this Rain Wilson's character he's trying to prove a point and somebody tr- climbs up into the ceiling trying to escape <laughs> from the fire and they just fall right through like the, the uh, yeah it's hilarious anyway so uh, yeah I had another we go down a rabbit hole about uh, Gene Hackman because my question was going to be is he the most intimidating actor of all time. Hmm. I never, yeah, I never thought like about that, but yeah. Making a list of like, as in like, just as a, the characters he plays, but also it, as an actor myself, if I were in a scene with him, I would immediately be intimidated. Like he just, I would see, like he just wins every scene that he's in. Mm-hmm. He just dominates. Oh yeah. 100% of the time. 100% of the time. I can totally see that. And I was trying to think of other actors that are like that, that you just are have that intimidating presence. There's some obvious ones. I think Costner can be intimidating actually at times, but also he can play vulnerable too. Yeah. And I think Hackman has range. Don't get me wrong, but he's, there's something about that guy. Yeah. You know, he's just an authority figure. Yeah. I'm, I'm kind of bummed that he kind of retired. Yeah. Cause I was trying to think there's obvious ones like Marlon Brando, Robert De Niro. I think I tell Jack Nicholson. Mm-hmm. Garcia, Andy Garcia can be pretty intimidating when he wants to be. Michael Shannon comes right to mind for me. Oh yeah, he always comes across as very intense. Yeah. yeah, that's a good. That's a good one. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Definitely had some good picks there. So I think that's all I've got for tonight, man. So yeah, just to put a cap on it too, uh, I heavily recommend this film. I think it's a very smart movie. There's a reason why. I did certainly did not have any holes. I, actually, I'm going to tack this on here. So be patient with me, Bill. The one, if there is a hole, and this is credit to the research, this is not coming from me, but 
But here's a fact for you. The Pentagon is one of the largest buildings in the world with 17 miles of corridors alone. And so this is literally what verbatim what the research is. For a single group to search it in two hours is preposterous. <laughs> yeah. Because we have there's search parties going through the Pentagon looking for Costner. And uh, there's just no way they would cover all that territory. No. It's too much. But uh, other than that, this film is brilliant. I don't even know. Do we even want to get into the twist? We managed not no. to. I, I think since let, we haven't we done leave it, it, leave it. Leave let's it. Just, let's tell our viewers. Watch it. Watch the movie. Yep. There's a twist we did not touch on at all. That's all I'm it's a say. big, big part of it that we never. Re- yeah. Yeah. Not all right. Say, not saying anything. You got to go watch this movie, guys. It's great. It's really smart. There aren't a lot of holes. It's well written, well acted. And it is once you get past the development stage, meaning character and relationship development, it's about 35 to 45 minutes. The movie kicks in to high gear and uh, you're off to the races and it's a lot of fun. Uh, so, yeah, I recommend it. I think you can rent it on YouTube. And I, I don't know. You can probably see it. on What was it on Hulu or It's on one of the streaming services, so check it out. All right. Okay, so I think that about wraps it up for this week's episode. Thank you for listening. Please subscribe and rate us. You can email us at all80smoviespodcasts at gmail.com. Please send us your feedback, questions, or recipes to share. You can follow us on Facebook at all80smoviespodcast or tweet us at podcastall80s. Join us again next week as we discuss the 1985 college comedy Real Genius starring Val Kilmer. Until then, have a totally great week, everyone. Good night, world. That was funny too, where the Contras see Costner and they're like, there he is. Like, why would you do that? Why would you yell that out? That made no sense to me. That made me laugh. I'm like, don't say that.